Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 149, King Offa Ascends the Throne of Mercia. This show is independent and free due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Jane, Chris, and John for contributing already. Last week, you might have noticed that your feeds went a little bit crazy and that the site was down. I'm really sorry about that. I moved to a faster and fancier server so that everything would be faster for you guys. And then everything kind of went haywire for a while and it took ages to get it all working. But everything should be stable and faster now. Also, while the site was down, I learned a little CSS and I did some modifications. So the site should be a little bit more pleasant to use. For example, all the community stuff is now easily found in the upper right-hand corner. Anyway, go check it out and definitely have a look at the Heptarchy family tree. I think it's pretty neat and it's listed under the extras menu button. All right, today we're starting a series on one of the most influential Mercian kings in history. King Offa. But before we start this story, I need to fess up to a couple things. First, for the last several hundred years, this period has often been described in terms of Mercian supremacy. And it's easy to see why that is. King Aethelbald was quite the heavyweight, and King Offa will prove to be another. Consequently, until recently, historians tended to describe this period in terms of early attempts at unity. However, that's a bit of hindsight bias. We know that England will come along, so when we see kings running around and taking over their neighbors, it's understandable that we would interpret that as attempts at forming England. But, while we know that England is coming, that doesn't mean that the kings, even kings who are rather gifted at dominating their neighbors, were attempting to create it. And to argue otherwise simplifies a situation that was very complex. So describing this century as one of mercy and supremacy simplifies the story and sidelines many important actors and kingdoms that were in play. After all, you might be familiar with one of the leading scholars of Western thought during this period, Alcuin. And if you aren't, you soon will be. This guy was such a big deal that he even played a major role in reforming how education was approached in the court of Charlemagne, which in turn was a big part of the Carolingian Renaissance. So Alcuin was a big thinker, and he was active in this period in history, and he wasn't Mercian. He was Northumbrian. And actually, Northumbria remained relatively free of Mercian interference, and even in the south there were free kingdoms. Kent was quite active and wasn't always dominated by Mercia. Same with Wessex. For those of you who learned about this period of history already, and have been taught to think of this period as Mercia forming an early form of England... Try to forget all of that and come to the 8th century fresh. Things are going to get a lot more complex than that narrative allows. Second, you're probably going to get annoyed with names at some point. I'll do my best to identify individuals by stating where they rule, reminding you who they are, and using their nicknames when they're available. But the truth is that a lot of these names will probably sound similar to you. Whenever you're getting frustrated, keep in mind that we're already well-versed at dealing with multiple people having the same or similar names. For example, how many Chris's, Matt's, and Jen's do you know? The Aethel names are actually a lot like Chris, 
And in your daily life, I'm sure you navigate the Chris's, Christopher's, Christians, Christina's, Christine's, Kristen's, and Christie's, and you manage just fine. Also, go to a St. Patty's Day party and shout Megan or Shannon and see how many heads turn. Multiple people having the same or similar names is just a fact of life. But like I said, I'll do my best to make sure that you don't get too lost by reminding you who these people were. So, when we're talking about all the Ethelberts, Ethelburs, Aidbalds, and Aidberts, try to keep that in mind. The final thing that I want to fess up to is our sources. Yep, I'm banging this drum again. In the 8th century, our sources suck. They suck even worse than usual. Unlike Charlemagne, who will be part of this story, and Alfred the Great, who will be coming along in the next century, our main character, Offa, has no personal biographer that we know of. And no Mercian Chronicle has survived from this period. We don't even have a record of where Offa was buried until chroniclers made a note of it in the 13th century, so hundreds of years later. This period is a huge black hole in many regards. To make matters worse, much of what we know that was happening in Mercia was what was written down by her rivals and enemies. Our major primary sources are the writers of the Welsh Annals, the West Saxon Chroniclers, a few bits from Northumbria, and some records from the continent. So always remember, when talking about Mercia in this period, we're getting an outside view. The Mercian hegemony might look more violent and chaotic than the West Saxon hegemony, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was. It might be entirely due to the sources that we have access to and the biases that they brought with them. As a consequence of this black hole, though, we know much more about Charlemagne than we do our main characters. Additionally, many of the written records that are referenced have been lost to time. For example, Alfred the Great later refers to Offa's law code, but we've never found it. Therefore, we find ourselves forced to rely on people who weren't necessarily all that fond of the Mercian leaders, like the irate letters from St. Boniface or the correspondence from Alcuin. And even when outside writers were neutral or even kind to Mercia in their accounts, they're not actually Mercian, so they didn't necessarily know what was really going on inside the kingdom, and certainly weren't privy to the motivations of many, if not all, of the events that transpired. Now, some of you might be saying, we have more than just chronicles, we have charters, and those can't be biased, they're just deeds and stuff. And my question for you is, why are you spending your time reading medieval land deeds? But yes, there are the sort of everyday legal business of kingdoms that we can learn from. But they came with serious downsides. Most of the charters that survived did so in churches outside of Mercia. So again, these were held by Mercia's neighbors and probably rivals. Also remember that the charters that survived have made it to our modern day not due to their importance, but through dumb luck. Very few of the documents written during Offa's time have survived, and we can't assume that what we can get our hands on right now were ground-shaking in importance back then. Indeed, a lot of them were just letters, or Offa confirming a gift, or random comments about a particular sub-king at a court. They aren't all that illuminating, and we have to just tease out facts from these little glimpses that we have. For example, there's a charter from Sussex that mentions that King Aildfrith of Lindsay was present. The charter itself doesn't really matter all that much, but from its pages, we can glean that the royal dynasty of Lindsay, or at least some form of kingship in Lindsay, survived into the 8th century. 
That's the sort of thing we're dealing with here. This complaint, by the way, is a really old one. The famous 12th century historian, William of Malmesbury, also complained about how difficult it was to account for King Offa of Mercia. And for good reason. Because Bede was no longer writing, we lack a clear, cohesive narrative that comes from something like the Historia. So we don't have anything to help put all the various charters and documents into context and explain motivations. The truth of it is that while Bede wasn't perfect, and I have tried to make it clear that his account should be read in the context of the world that he lived in and his Northumbrian biases, the fact of the matter is that even with those weaknesses in mind, he is certainly missed now that we're deep into the 8th century. Also, am I the only one asking why we don't have another work along the lines of Bede? Northumbria was becoming a major center of learning at the time, and Bede had acolytes. Also, Alcuin came from Northumbria. He was educated there. So we know that there were bright lights coming from that kingdom. Even after the record went quiet, we can be pretty sure that there was a great deal of focus upon learning in Northumbria. Yet we don't have an updated version of the Historia. Our vision gets a bit dim. We don't know exactly why we have this blank spot, but I find it very difficult to believe that no one was following up Bede. My suspicion is that there were indeed historians and chroniclers at work, and that part of the reason for this black hole was due to the arrival of Norse pyromaniacs starting at the end of this century. And yes, yes, I know the Vikings are cool and all, they make for fun costumes and truly awful television series, but they also were a bit of a problem for us. So while this story is an important one, and a big one, our sources are incomplete, and quite possibly biased. Keep that in mind as we go forward, and next time you see a Viking, slap him. It'll make the rent fair more interesting. Anyway, we're not skipping this period because in spite of our sketchy source material, what we're seeing is an England that was in the midst of a major change. It's easy to imagine the past, especially the Middle Ages, as largely static. A sort of comforting pastoral scene where generations passed upon the same little farm in the same little village where everyone knew their role, and nothing big ever changed all that much. But the 8th century was a period of immense change and growth. Foreign trade was really starting to take off, and it would continue to expand into our little island. This didn't just mean a change for European politics. It meant potentially big changes for the everyday lives of virtually everyone. Trade on a grand scale, at the very least, meant an influx of new ideas as well as new forms of income. While land was still the main source of wealth, trade was becoming increasingly important. Don't forget that a king was a giver of rings, and his power flowed from his ability to give his supporters and his warband a variety of gifts. In their culture, giving a gift gave honor to the gift giver. It's done as a show of status, but it's also a way of reinforcing bonds of loyalty. Remember back in the Staffordshire Horde episodes when we were told about how the Anglo-Saxon warbands were filled with psychopathic peacocks and how they likely demanded ever more extravagant gifts to be displayed on their weapons and armor? Well, that tradition was still there. In London, Hamwick, which is modern-day Southampton, Ipswich, and York were all expanding in power and prominence. So with the appearance of trading towns, Kings that were lucky enough to hold dominion over them soon discovered that they no longer needed to raid in order to satisfy their own bands of peacocks. They could gain that wealth simply through trade. 
a new day was dawning. The rural landscape began to reflect that shift, as it was increasingly exploited and fields were restructured and reorganized. Archaeological and written records also show an increase in the use of fish traps, weirs, salt extraction, and other forms of management of natural resources. Additionally, we see that some farming communities were moving from subsistence farming, farming to feed the family and pay food rent, and now they were developing specialized farms, perhaps for market-based production. Think about that from the perspective of the average person living in the English kingdoms, and what an enormous change that would have meant. Their lives would have been radically different from their forebears. Archaeological evidence and legal documents from this era are showing us that these people may have been dealing with similar cultural and lifestyle shifts that we're currently dealing with in our modern day due to technology. They very well might have had the kind of cultural gap between generations that we've grown used to. I mean, we're talking about a period where your grandparents or even your parents were likely subsistence farmers, whereas now you might spend all day doing nothing but making cloth for sale at market. That is an enormous change. We're also seeing evidence of populations physically moving with the times. We see evidence that when more fertile lands were acquired, entire settlements were sometimes relocated. Again, that must have been a bit of a traumatic event for the average serf. Your family has been on this land for generations, maybe a hundred years, maybe longer. And then suddenly the Lord comes along and says, okay, Pack your stuff. We're moving to this new plot of land we just stole from the Middle Angles. It probably would have freaked people out a bit. And if things went sideways, my guess is that it probably wouldn't have been the Lord that would go hungry. And even assuming that everything went well, there would still be all new neighbors. And this period was a bit insular and xenophobic with strangers. So no matter which way you slice it, relocating was an anxious, unsettling activity. But movement and reorganization was inevitable, as the economy was moving from hand to mouth to something that was incorporating trade, specialization, and mass production. And some of the nobles were cashing in. This wasn't just done by the royal dynasties, though. The church was also getting into the business, and both groups were making out like bandits. This activates one of the major tensions of this era as the church inevitably came into conflict with the ruling classes as they pushed for various types of reforms and agendas to further their influence and wealth. And some of them were in direct conflict with the nobility who were trying to do the same. There was a growing belief among the clergy in Britain that the church should be separate and immune from secular powers, if not above them. That rang counter to what some of the nobles wanted, especially when they realized that there was a great deal of wealth concentrating within some of these religious houses, and they wanted access to it. A struggle was brewing, and it wasn't going to end soon, nor would it end particularly well, especially since they were so intertwined. The church relied upon the king's protection, as well as land grants, endowments, and various gifts. However, the church also gave the kings a great deal of assistance that they were becoming increasingly dependent on. While the English were largely illiterate at this point, having literate men in a king's court was really, really beneficial. Having people able to read and write made delegation easier, which made it easier for kingdoms to expand and control sub-kings. If you had a few men of letters present in your kingdom, you could have them write down your orders and then take them to your underlings. 
you wouldn't have to exercise direct control by traveling to a region and giving orders in person. This was a huge boon, as kings suddenly didn't need to rely on a traveling court, nor did they have to rely on messengers who may or may not remember your exact words by the time they reached their destination. So it was a pretty good deal. The problem for these kings was that most of the literate men at this point were in the church. That gave the church a great deal of sway within these kingdoms. The balance of power was quite precarious, and unlike their predecessors a century earlier, the kings now couldn't make war quite so easily. They were expected to rule as Christian kings, which was defined by individual members of the clergy at one time or another, but overall, they were expected to uphold justice, patronize the church, and further Christianity. Did you see attack those good-for-nothing Northumbrians on that list? Yeah, me neither. This was the new world that the 8th century brought. A world that was changing, with a new conflict growing between the upper classes, and one that was incredibly poorly documented in Britain, probably thanks in no small part to the Vikings. However, despite our limitations, what all the references seem to agree on, or at least point to, is that Offa was a powerful and effective king of Mercia, and was the overlord of a large portion of southern England. So let's start with his rise to power. King Aethelbald, one of the greatest Mercian kings to have ever lived, a king who was so powerful that he managed to bring most of the south under his hegemonic control, and who became deeply involved in church reform despite his apparent love of nuns, was now dead, murdered by his own bodyguard in 757. This would have been a period of intense anxiety. Even if there wasn't a bloody regicide, which there was, it still would have made everybody pretty damn nervous. The kingdoms of the Heptarchy don't exactly have a history of peaceful transfers of power, especially when blood feuds got triggered. And even under the best of circumstances, Mercia in particular could be pretty dodgy. King Aethelred, son of Penda, seems to have taken the throne without much trouble, but his own queen was murdered by the nobility before he abdicated. So you can't really count his reign as 100% successful, and it does a lot to show how powerful the Mercian nobles were becoming. I mean, they felt free to kill the queen. King Cholred, son of Aethelred, was only in power for about five years, and it looks like he spent most of his time coping with internal instability. He exiled his enemies, killed others, and then tried and failed to kill his chief rival, Aethelbald before dying at dinner, possibly due to poisoning. And that brings us to King Aethelbald, who spent much of his early reign trying to solidify his rule, which suggests that it was a bit wild and rebellious for a while. And he ended his reign by getting killed by his own bodyguard. So what I'm getting at is that we have a history of instability in Mercia, and recent Mercian monarchs have been mostly focused upon dealing with rivals and rebellions in their early reigns. Though, King Aethelbald gave us a new twist on this story before he died. He fathered a small army of children with various nuns. So not only do we have regicide, we also have an incredibly large pool of potential claimants to the throne. You might have dismissed the kids out of hand, assuming that they wouldn't have had a claim to the throne because of the circumstances of their birth. But the requirement for birth within an approved marriage wasn't yet part of succession. In fact, one of the better Northumbrian kings, King Aldfrith, was born out of wedlock. If Aethelbald was as prolific as rumors suggest, 
there were a lot of potential claimants out there. Another twist to this is the fact that with the exception of Penda's sons, the throne of Mercia didn't always pass to the son of the prior king. Virtually anyone with royal blood appears to have been eligible. And the slain King Aethelbald had a brother, Herdbert, who we're told was still alive and was a powerful elderman in Mercia. There were plenty of potential monarchs to choose from. So of course, the throne immediately passed to Bjornred, son of... uh, we don't know. We know pretty much nothing about King Bjornred, in fact. He just sort of pops up out of nowhere, which has led some scholars to wonder whether or not he was involved in King Aethelbald's murder. However, just like with his lineage, we aren't given any details whether or not he was involved in the regicide. But whatever, he was now king. King Bjornred. You might be wondering why it didn't go to Herdbert, brother of Aethelbald, or to any of Aethelbald's kids. Why Bjornred? Well, that's a good question, and it looks like many people in Mercia were asking the same thing, because Mercia immediately exploded into civil war. At the head of the rebellion was King Aethelbald's cousin, Offa, son of Thingfrith, son of Aenwulf, descendant of Eowa, brother of Penda. I think I should start using that style for the show, by the way. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, son of Alan, son of John, descendant of Thor, brother of Tyr. Anyway, this civil war was great news for Mercia's enemies and subkings. We're told that the Mercian nation was in disarray and that the Imperium had disintegrated. Meanwhile, King Chinewulf of Wessex had annexed the lands bordering the Thames in Berkshire and probably followed it up by taking the lands in Dorchester. My guess is that the Magenseta, the Middle Angles, and possibly the Kingdom of Lindsay also detached themselves from Mercian rule at this point. Aethelbald was gone, and many of the subkingdoms still had their own dynasties, so they might have been trying their own hand at southern politics. Meanwhile, within the borders of Mercia, we have Offa, descendant of Eowa, fighting against King Bjornred of Mercia. That's a daunting task. Even if Offa was a powerful elderman in Mercia, leading a civil war against the sitting king would have been quite the undertaking. However, in addition to his family ties to the royal dynasty, Offa seems to have had ties to the kingdom, and sometimes the sub-kingdom, of Hwissa through his grandfather, Anwulf. Further, some scholars have pointed out that Offa's daughter, Aethelbur might have been the same Aethelbur who was mentioned as the kin to the sub-king Aeldred of Hwissa. Though Aethelbur was a common name, so it's hard to say for sure, but those facts have led some scholars to suggest that Offa might have had the support of Hwissa in his fight against King Bjornred. The other support that Offa might have had would have come through his wife, Chinithrith. Based upon her name and her actions later on in life that we'll get to, it's thought that Chinithrith might have been a descendant of Penda. After all, her name sounds rather like Queen Chinawiza and Penda's two daughters, Chinabur and Chinaswith. So, in addition to potential support from Huissa, as well as his royal ties that went back to Eowa, brother of Penda, he might also have marital ties to the line of Penda, which would have made him an incredibly strong candidate to the throne, especially if King Bjornred lacked that level of dynastic support. Inbreeding had its advantages. 
And that could explain why, in a matter of months, it seems that Offa put King Bjorn Red to flight. Yet again, we're seeing that Mercia is kind of a terrible place to reign. In a couple years, they've had regicide, civil war, and then King Bjornred, who reigned for about 15 minutes, and it was a glorious reign, assuming that you like civil war and lots of screaming. But at last, it was over. King Offa held Mercia. Though, it seems that Mercia was not entirely stable. Shocking, right? Consequently, even after Offa took the throne, he most likely had to begin his early reign relying on just the political power and wealth that he accumulated prior to seizing the throne, meaning that he probably inherited basically nothing from Aethelbald. That's bad. Even if he was a powerful noble, that was not a good place for a king to be in. At the bare minimum, you need more wealth and power than your nobles. But that's the hand that he was dealt. The Civil War had done so much damage, and there were such deep divisions in the political structure of Mercia, that any stability gained by Aethelbald was lost. Not only that, but much of what Aethelbald would have considered as Mercia was probably lost as well. It's thought that Offa's early dominion might have been mostly restricted to just the Mercian heartland. A lot can change in a year. But it seems that Offa was up for the challenge. And immediately upon taking the throne, he utilized his advantage with the kingdom of Huasa and asserted Mercian domination over them, as shown in one document where it refers to Uhtred and Eldred, the rulers of Huasa, as reguli, basically kinglets, serving underneath Offa. Now, while we're told that Offa quickly put Bjornred to flight, we're also told that it took him a year before he could fully take Mercia. That sounds like serious internal instability. And we're told that Offa, quote, attempted to conquer the Mercian kingdom with sword and bloodshed, end quote. Brutal. My guess is that what that quote is referring to is not just putting down internal issues, but also using force to reestablish Mercian domination over sub-kingdoms like the Magonseta, Middle Angles, and the Kingdom of Lindsay. However, I don't want to underplay the internal problems that he likely faced. It seems quite likely that in that year, Offa was scaring many of his own subjects into submission and killing those who refused to bend the knee. Now that sounds brutal and chaotic, but consider what Offa had inherited. Beyond the normal level of lethality that seems to be part of mercy in politics, King Offa had an additional problem to deal with that I hinted at earlier. He had a small army of children that Aethelbald most likely fathered. And that's something of a nightmare for him, since they would have had royal blood and claims to the throne. Considering that many of the nuns would have been from other royal families, those kids might have had as strong of a claim, if not a stronger claim, than Offa and his own children. Such a threat could not go unanswered. And that is likely why we hear of Offa's brutality during this period, and why later foreign writers will speak with scorn of his dynastic purge, and why Mercia focused inward for its early history under Offa. He probably wasn't just bringing former subkings to heal. He was probably also trimming the family tree as fast as possible to ensure that the next in line would be a child of his and Chinnathrith's. Now, as you know, our sources are from outside of Mercia, so they might carry biases. But given the kingdom that Offa now possessed, and the problems contained within it, 
as well as the absence of an enormous dynasty following off his reign. This does seem rather plausible, and it's why the working title for this episode was Kinslaying, the cause of and solution to all our problems. But as we end this episode, Offa is starting to look more secure on the throne. His heartland is stabilizing, and he's gained a few sub-kings. So we're ready for the next episode, where Mercia really starts to stretch his legs. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, you name it. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. It's also really easy to find now. It's just in the upper right-hand corner. All right, thanks for listening. 